Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, our series is Christ's Cross and Empty Tomb. The name of the sermon is called The Unexpected Triumph and Loving Tears of Christ. And Pastor David will be preaching from Luke 19, 29-46. Let's join Pastor David now. We're starting today in a new series, actually, within the Gospel of Luke, Christ's Cross an empty tomb. And in, in this Sunday, uh, in Christ's triumphal entry, and in this week, Palm Sunday, uh, a Good Friday, Easter, in a way, we're going to get this entire series in just a really brief snapshot uh, over the course of a couple weeks. And at the same time, we're then going to walk through the Gospel of Luke all the way to the end. As we've started, so we will continue and finish Portion by portion, as we're seeing this story unfold, Christ's cross and empty tomb, the culmination of the mission, the culmination of the story, the gospel of Luke's story, redemptive history's story, see it culminate in what Christ is accomplishing for us. So would you meet me, uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. We're going to pick up there and continue on Luke 19. Verse 28, page 1044, if you're using the church Bible provided uh, for you there. Luke 19, verse 28. Let me just read just that verse. It says that when Jesus said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as we've seen from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, if memory serves me correctly, that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And from chapters 9 to 19, we keep getting little reminders, little glimpses, little peaks that the journey is leading toward Jerusalem. And now he's here. He's arrived. He's in Jerusalem. That it's all been building up to this moment. That Christ and his mission, as we saw in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke, 1 through 9, we see Christ's birth, his, um, uh, his incarnation. We see him calling his disciples, chapter 9 to 19, the journey narratives, the travel narratives where Christ and his disciples are navigating this path and Jesus is showing what it means to be a follower of Christ. And here, from chapter 19, verse 28 to the end, we see the culmination of the mission of God himself, the mission of the king, the mission of Christ for you and for I in his cross and empty tomb. So let me pray, and then we're going to look at this passage again together. Let's pray. Father... Would you show us again and afresh the magnitude of your glory? You are king, and that is a fitting title, Lord, for you to bear. And yet you came in very unique and humble and meek and selfless ways for us. May we never get over that or get past it. May that never grow ordinary or cold or commonplace. Stir our hearts again. Lord, as we reflect this Sunday on just how you came and how you came for us, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. The triumphal entry shows us that our king came like no other, that the king that we have, the king of glory, the king of the universe, King Christ, he came indeed in his incarnation. He's coming indeed again in his second coming, and here in the triumphal entry, he came, but he came unlike any other. Not like ordinary kings. Not like he would have been expected to. A king, absolutely. 
but a king with a very unique entry and a very unique way of, of declaring who he is and what he's going to accomplish. Check this out. Verse 19, uh, or sorry, 29, chapter 19, uh, verse 29 to 36. Look how the story unfolds. When Jesus drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go in, into the village in front of you. Where on entering you will find a colt, a donkey, tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. He's forecasting what's about to happen, a little glimpse into his power. He, he's God. He's deity. He's telling the future. You're going to find a colt tied. Untie it and bring it here. Verse 32. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. This is how Jesus is entering Jerusalem. And at first glance, uh, nothing seems quite out of the ordinary. Uh, he's, he's on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's entering into Jerusalem, but it's more than just a means of transportation. Something is unfolding here. In Jesus' time, in this culture, in time and place, there was actually a, a, a somewhat set protocol of how kings would enter into a city. There was a set expectation or a schema that if, some, if someone who was a big deal came to town, a king would often come riding on a horse, a sign of triumph, a sign of military power and strength and might. They would often come on a horse, uh, perhaps displaying war trophies in a way of saying, you mess with me and this is, the, this is what's going to happen to you. A way, in some ways, of intimidation, a way of, of flexing uh, someone's power and position and influence, it would come in on a horse. It would have communicated a king coming in triumph for war. And often, uh, when the person would arrive to the edge of the city, the movers and shakers of the city, the dignitaries, the, the political leaders, the religious leaders would, would go out and meet the person and then escort them into the city. And when they were brought into the city, they would be lauded by all sorts of speeches, speech after speech after speech, saying what an honor it would be to have uh, the king in our presence, and, and, and proclaiming uh, uh, just how uh, profound a privilege that it, that it was by all of the key leaders of that city. That would have been the expectation. That was what commonly took place in Jesus' time. But you notice, when you read this passage, None of that happens. None of that happens. He's not met on the outside of the city from the movers and shakers of Jerusalem. He's not ushered in and welcomed with, with speech after speech. And he's certainly not coming in on a horse. What's going on? He's coming like no other. He's a king, absolutely. What he is doing as coming in on a colt, the foal of a donkey, is to declare as one of the ways that a king would enter, but not a king on a horse coming in triumph and might and power in, in, in victory, but rather on a donkey communicated a king come humbly in meekness for peace, a king come lowly, a king nonetheless, but a king come in a unique way. 
we see as, as this is unfolding that he's coming like no other. Why? Because his mission is like no other. That the manner in which he comes is actually unexpected. They expected, they wanted a king on a horse come in might and power to overthrow. Remember, God's people at this time were an occupied, oppressed people. They wanted the king to overthrow and throw off the weights and chains of their Roman oppressors. They wanted a king on a horse, but they got the king on a donkey, on a colt. But ironically, the manner of his entrance is exactly fitting to the purpose of his mission. Why? What is his mission? That Christ is not coming to force peace by putting his, his heel on the neck of evildoers, as it were. He's not coming to force peace by might and, and power. It's a false peace. It's a superficial peace. It's a peace that tamps down and presses down that which is evil, but it doesn't do away with evil. Christ is going for something deeper. Christ is reaching for something deeper. He's not coming to force peace. He's coming to he himself be our peace. Colossians chapter 1 puts it this way. You don't have to turn there, but listen. Listen as I, as I read how elsewhere in the New Testament it puts the mission of Christ. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is our king, God himself, Jesus Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. Peace. By the blood of his cross. What is he doing? Why is he entering this way? Why is he coming so humbly? He's coming humbly because that's exactly how he is going to gain ultimate victory over our ultimate enemies, sin, death, and Satan. He's coming humbly in peace to make peace because that's exactly how he's going to go about reconciling humanity and God. God and us, sinful, broken, fallen people, reconciled to a holy and perfect God. He's coming to become our peace, and in a way, therefore, making his followers peacemakers, those who turn to the left and to the right, to individuals or communities, and seek to make peace, not by forcing it, but from the inside out, living out the peace within us that Christ has accomplished for us, he himself is our peace, and he's doing that as he's, in this moment, entering the city, knowing that it's going to culminate in the cross. See the juxtaposition of Palm Sunday and communion at the same time. Do you see what he's going to accomplish? By his very death, absorbing God's justice, absorbing uh, the, the, the natural consequence and all sin and all evil, he's absorbing that unto himself so that he can extend to us grace and mercy and peace and reconciliation. He's coming in a way that no one would have expected. He's coming like no other. He shouldn't be coming on a donkey. We want him on a horse. But he's coming on a, a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, so that he could make peace because his mission is like no other. Do you see what he's coming to accomplish? Now, you would think that would be a pretty clear response to how he was coming, but that's not the case. Our king has come like no other, but his welcome is a mixed bag. It's mixed. Not everyone's responding in a uniform way. Not everyone's bowing the knee in triumph and joy. There's certainly some of that, but it's not only that. Look at how these two responses unfold, 37 and 38 first. Look at those verses. 
We see, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace. There it is again. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So the disciples are they're rejoicing. And the disciples here, it's a multitude of them. So it's presumably, certainly, more than just uh, the 12 followers that Jesus has been walking with from start to finish in the Gospel of Luke. Because remember, along the way, chapters 9 to 19, Jesus has been teaching, and people have been hearing it. Jesus has been healing, and people have been receiving it. Jesus has been uh, doing miracles, stilling storms. Jesus uh, has been casting out demons. Uh, Jesus has been sitting and dining with the unexpected. He's been sitting and dining with, with, with the worst of worst that people would have considered. He's been sitting and dining with, with the puffed up and self-righteous, extending grace to both, mercy to both, calling both to respond to him. And people are seeing it. Words getting around. The, the news of Jesus is spreading, and the disciples are praising God because of all that they have seen. The Messiah He's coming, and he's coming into the city, and they're worshiping and praising, saying, blessed is the king, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna. So the the disciples are rejoicing, but notice the juxtaposition. Notice the contrast. Notice the difference in how the Pharisees are responding. Verse 39, look at this response. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. And in saying this to Jesus, in a way, it's a rebuke of Jesus himself. The Pharisees are saying, Whoa, what's what's going on here? Jesus, you got got to get this under control. This is is becoming chaotic. Do Do you hear what your disciples are saying? Do you see what they're doing? Do you know the implications that this has for us, Jesus? So say the Pharisees. Do you know the implications that this has, the ripple effect for Rome, that we're trying to get along with, Jesus? What you're doing is going to rock the boat because the Pharisees know loud and clear what Jesus is declaring and saying and what's being said about who Jesus is in the manner and how he's entering. Number one, notice this. Uh, Jesus is coming on a colt, a donkey, the foal of a donkey, and that's not on accident. It's not Jesus rolling into town saying, oh man, you know, the last rental car was, was this. I guess I got to ride in on this thing. Something very specific is actually being fulfilled in the manner in which Jesus comes. Many of you perhaps know this, have heard this before. Hear it again. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Listen on as I read. says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold. Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 has declared the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to come in riding on a donkey, on a colt. And when Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, (laughs) on a colt, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. 
I'm the one that the entire Old Testament has been anticipating and waiting for. The greater David, the greater Moses, the greater prophet, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. The Messiah come humbly for you. That's me. And the Pharisees see that, and that's a threat to them. They're saying, well, how, how dare you claim to be the Messiah? He's either crazy or he's really the Messiah. He's either lost it. What a prideful statement to say. What a blasphemous statement to say. Or he actually is the Messiah. But not only that. He's declaring in how he's coming, and I'm the Messiah. But not just that. Do you see what his disciples are saying? Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And here we have an echo, a quotation, if you will, Psalm 118, which is a kingly psalm, which would have been recited at the inauguration of, 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 of the lesser kings leading up throughout the Old Testament. It, it, it was a phrase that was directly taken from a psalm that declares the identity of the person as king. Now, Jesus is receiving that. Blessed is the king. How do you think Rome's going to like that kind of news floating around? A king? A new king in the kingdom? Who? Where? Well, what are they doing? What's their purpose? And to Rome's ears, this would, this would have smelled like a revolution brewing. This would have smelled something that we got we to gotta tamp down. We got to get under control if we're going to maintain peace, maintain order. And the disciples are declaring, blessed is the king, the king. And the Pharisees are nervous, not only Messiah, but now they're saying king. This is going to put them in a really tight place as they're trying to keep things under wraps, keep things cool. And the disciples are declaring loud, publicly, that this is the king come into Jerusalem, the city. He's either crazy or he really is the king. It's either false and blasphemous. He's either wrong or delusional or he really, really, really is the king. But it's not just that. Not just declaring he's Messiah. Not just declaring he's king. But do you see what else is unfolding implicitly and explicitly? He's receiving worship. They're worshiping him. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We see, uh, backtracking, one more verse, verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And the Pharisees are saying, whoa, wait a second. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Only one person, only one God is worthy to receive praise and worship. You can't just worship anybody that strolls on into town. Do you see the irony? Do you see the profound nature of what's happening? He's either insane or he is God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. God sent God to come in to rescue you and I, and he's entering in the city. The disciples are recognizing it. The Pharisees are upset by it. Some worship. The Pharisees rebuke. 
His, the response, the welcome of the people is a completely mixed bag. Now hear what Jesus says. He answered them, I tell you, he's answering the Pharisees, I tell you, if these were silent, my disciples, these people, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Creation itself declares the praise of God. We see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the Psalms all over the place. Here's one, Psalm 96, 11 and 12. Hear this. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. The skies declare the glory of God. They're his handiwork. You think about uh, the end of the book of Job, where God speaks to Job and he calls him and he asks all these series of questions. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Surely you know. Surely you know, Job, have you, have you uh, walked and strolled along the depths of the ocean? Do you know the, every nook and cranny of the bottom of the sea? Were you there? Surely you know, Job, the expanse of the universe in the sky, every galaxy, every star placed by me as he stretches out the galaxies like, like a blanket over a bed. See his power, see his might. Surely you know. Job, where do you hold the storehouse of snow? From where is the foundation, the place where I hold light? Where does it come from? Surely you know the scales of the clouds. You know where Leviathan sleeps? I do, says God to Job. Do you see what Jesus is declaring? That he is the very creator of the universe, image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created on heaven and on earth, Visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. At his very word, creation comes into existence. In the beginning was the word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It was not anything made that was not made by Him, by His very Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what did He do? He spoke. And out of nothing, something came. <laughs> out of no existence, existence existed. Why? Because He spoke it. He said it. And all of a sudden, mountains in their grandeur, trees in their glory, uh, clouds in the sky, ocean, and it's rolling waves and it's power. People, you and me, animals, creation, the laws of physics, the rules of chemistry, designed, created, crafted, organized by the hands of the infinite glory of the artist that is our God. Jesus rolls into Jerusalem and says, listen, even if these disciples are silent, the stones will cry out. It's hard to overemphasize. It's hard to fully capture just how fitting it is to take a posture of worship before a God of this kind of magnitude. That when we worship, do you know what we're doing? We're joining with all of creation that's already singing the praises and the glory of God. Angels, day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Creation itself, your garden <laughs> worships God. 
we just join the choir. And as he comes into Jerusalem, our king in power, in might, in glory and splendor, yet humble, meek, mild, coming to die, coming to die for you and for me. His welcome is absolutely a mixed bag. And Jesus, because it's such a mixed bag, because he's seeing the Pharisees and others turning away from him, do you see what is going to unfold next? That Jesus laments. He cries. He sheds tears for those who are refusing. He sheds tears for those who are not responding. He sheds tears of lament and sadness for the city that's not recognizing the king has come in their midst. Look at what this says. Look at what, how this unfolds. Verse 41 and following. And when he drew near and saw the city, the city full of people, he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear, down, tear you down to the ground, and you and your children with, within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What Jesus is doing is he is the ultimate prophet. He is the true prophet, lamenting over the city, crying over the, the very people he's come to save, and the very people who are rejecting not responding, not seeing, not recognizing that the king is in their midst. Do you see? He, he's, he's like a prophet, but not just like a prophet. He is the ultimate prophet. That all the prophets of the Old Testament said, I, I'm not God. I have the word of God through me. Would you hear it? And when the people didn't respond, the prophets, in many cases, would be sad. They would lament. Because the people are not responding. Now Jesus is coming, and he's not saying, hey, I'm not God, but I have a message from me. He's saying, I am God. I am the message. I'm both message and messenger, and he's coming to the city who's not responding to the very salvation he himself is bringing to them, and he's weeping over it. We've seen Jesus' heart in this way already in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you would not, and you would not. He's coming, as it were, as, as a mother hen, reaching out his wings wide, saying, won't you take refuge under me? Won't you take protection, care, salvation under my wings? And they're not responding. So he sheds tears, what kind of tears, not tears of anger, not tears of spite, not tears of, how dare you, don't you realize who I am? <laughs> tears of sadness, tears of grief, tears of sadness on behalf of someone else, tears of, of, of empathy, sympathy, tears of saying, do you not see what's, what's unfolding? This is the time of your visitation. A the kind of tears that says the rescue boat is come and is gone. It's come and is going. Are you on it? And as the Pharisees are rejecting him, as, as, as many in the city are rejecting him, do you see what he's recognizing? This is the moment of salvation. 
and those who are not responding to it do not have God's peace. They don't have the peace that I'm going to offer, and he sheds tears over that. We see in just these next two verses, 45 and 46, watch again how the story unfolds. As he's lamenting the lost, then it says, he enters the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. What's Jesus doing? In a way, he's the ultimate temple, isn't he? The true temple is entering the temple, driving out, in this case, a, a, a unjust gain. That a place of worship, a place of exaltation, a place of communion with God uh, has become a den of robbers. Not just a transaction of resources, but an unjust transaction of resources. What's he doing? He's pushing, in a way, sin out of his kingdom by cleansing the temple. And then the million-dollar question arises... How does Jesus push sin out without pushing me out? How does Jesus rid sin of existence without ridding me of my existence? How does, how does Jesus satisfy all that is wrong, all that is sinful, all that is broken, all that is just without crushing me? And do you see what's unfolding? He's coming to do just that. How does he do that? He does that by us taking refuge under the blood of the Lamb, us taking refuge in the King himself. He's the very King to bring justice and the very bring King to offer mercy at the same time for you and for me because both exist in me. That if Jesus was to push sin out, then I ought to be pushed out. How am I not pushed out? Only by taking refuge under the King under what he's accomplished for you and for me. Taking refuge under him is the very salvation we have. And because the city is rejecting him, that's why he's mourning. That's why he's shedding tears. That's why he's entering in a way. What a juxtaposition of, of, of this moment. He's entering in a triumphal entry. And the irony even of that, a king of ultimate triumph, a king of ultimate power, yet come humbly, yet coming humbly to triumph over the true enemies, the ultimate and final enemies, yet he's coming in tears. For those who do not respond to him, for those who do not come under his refuge and his saving grace. And the triumphal entry then, and as we reflect on the triumphal entry now, it's the same message for them as it is for us. The king is coming into the city calling, yearning, beckoning, asking, pleading, longing, pursuing, receive your king. Receive your king. Receive your king. Receive your king. And when you receive your king, his peace, not his tears, will be yours. When you receive this king, the true king, Christ the king, his peace, peace, his peace, not his tears, not his sadness, not his lament that you are lost, but his peace, welcome in that you are found and saved, will be yours. That's why he's come, to offer that kind of peace. That's why this message has ripple effect all throughout the centuries, to continue to carry on and to offer that kind of peace that only the true king offers. And if that is what Jesus is saying, I think it's important for us, two questions, two questions. Number one, 
Do you see what kind of king has come into Jerusalem? And do you see what kind of king has come for you? Let's tackle that one first. What kind of king is this? What kind of king of that kind of glory and that kind of power and that kind of splendor comes humbly in such a way that when he's rejected, when he's turned against, when people do not respond to him, he doesn't smite them, he sheds tears for them. Think about that. Have you ever had a moment where an act of selfless love that you have done on, on behalf of someone else has either gone unseen or it was completely seen but rejected? Ever had that experience? Ever had that moment? Maybe you've been slaving away all week at work. You're exhausted. You're tired. But you know exactly the flavors, the smells, the dishes, the, the courses of food that is going to make your family Relax, feel at home, be encouraged, and you make every single course, every single ingredient, and you pour over that meal for hours, and you put your blood and your... You're tired, you're exhausted, you would like someone else to make the food, but you, you pour into this, and then you lay out the spread over the table, and you sit down, and somewhere from someone, a voice at the table says, mm, can we eat something else? <laughs> uh, dear friends... Does the wrath boil up in your heart? <laughs> or do tears of sadness on behalf of someone else boil up in your heart? Have you been there? Uh, how many of, of you, I've heard of this and I trust that it is true, how many of you have put decades, plural, of your life in a way on pause? Pouring in your money, pouring in your time, driving your child to and fro, to activities, to sports, to, to things, to friends' house. You have put vacations on hold. You have put your desires on hold. You have, have had countless of thousands of diapers processed through. And all of a sudden, somewhere, someday, sometime, a little sentence comes out of their voice, you don't even love me. <laughs> Does wrath boil up in that moment? <laughs> Or do tears appreciate this? We've all known incredible selfless acts of love on behalf of someone else. Either just unseen. It just goes unseen. Do you not see how I'm loving you? Do you not see how I'm caring about you? It just goes unseen, or it is seen, but just rejected. Meh, can we eat something else? <laughs> now imagine God. The king of all glory, he made us, he designed us. We are his own creation. Do you see that if he collected his breath, his spirit unto himself, we would fall into nothingness. We have no idea just how every moment of our sheer existence is an expression of God's common grace in sustaining all things. Now enter into the city and have him be rejected. If he was only like us, this should be a moment of incredible, spiteful, vengeful anger. But it's tears. Love, care, lament. Tears for us. Tears for you. Tears for me. We're throwing an egg in his face by not recognizing for who he is as he's entering into Jerusalem. And instead of getting mad, Instead of uh, just calling down fire from heaven, 
What's he doing? He's shedding tears. Because he himself will absorb that fire from heaven on the cross so that he can turn to us in love and compassion and care and patience and tears of lament. My friends, what kind of king is this? Consider that. If, in it, if he is that kind of king, of that much power, that much might, yet compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he is worth receiving. He's worth receiving. There's no better king to receive than King Christ. Receive him, and his peace, not his tears, will be yours. Two questions, again, remember, first question as we just considered now. Consider what kind of king is this? And then second question, compare him. What other kings are you bowing to? What other kings are you turning to? What other counterfeit kings that are plagiarizing the very promises of God are we running to instead of him? And when you compare those two side by side, my friends, would you see there is no comparison? Take the king who's coming to Jerusalem for you. One example, well, a couple examples. Here's a few. If I want entrance into the kingdom of God, the lesser king of religion is going to say, you better get to work. You better get busy. You better get more sincere, more effort, more zeal, more time, more resources, and you just never might know when you finally achieve enough. That's the god of religion. That's the king of religion. It's the I think I can religion. It's the pull yourselves up by your bootstraps kind of religion. It's the kind that says, you want to get into the kingdom of God? You better get to work. And all religion everywhere, all around the globe, is some other repackaging of that very message. But do you see, King Christ says something completely different. He says, you want entrance into my kingdom? Come in based off my work, my effort, my righteousness for you. Receive what I have accomplished for you. Compare the kings. Why turn to any lesser king other than King Christ? Here's another lesser king that we turn to. You want a sense of peace? You want a sense of wholeness? You want a sense of completeness? Identity is going to say, you better find yourself. You better define it. You better pursue it. You better assert it. Whatever that identity is, you make it. You craft it. You assert it. And that's the only way you're going to have, have a sense of wholeness and completeness. Shalom, if you will, the Hebrew word for peace. Now, it's important to know the, Hebrew, the, the word for peace, the biblical word for peace, is so much deeper, it's so much richer than just a stalemate. It's not just a lack of dissonance. Peace, to put it in an image, it's the Garden of Eden. Perfect harmony with God, walking in the garden together, perfect harmony with each other, no distrust, no dissension, no hurt, no betrayal, no loss, no anger, no divisions. Perfect harmony with each other. It's hard to imagine. And perfect harmony with the created world, with creation. No weeds, <laughs> no dandelions. A world that is not falling apart. And one, one of the lesser kings that vies for our attention in our time is identity. If you want to have that kind of shalom, if you want to get back to the garden, if you will, that kind of peace, you've got to find, define, and express yourself, and you've got to get to work doing it. But do you know what's going to happen? You're going to pursue that, and you're going to be more and more and more anxious every step of the way. When is enough enough? You're going to crave affirmation from every single corner, and when you don't get it, it's going to leave you more empty, more lost. You're falling apart from the inside out. Do you see the peace that our king offers? 
that he himself is our peace, that when you find yourself and you find yourself in him, that's when you come to a place of perfect, complete salvation, to put it in biblical terms. Why turn to any lesser king? Here's another one. Chaos in the world, brokenness in the world, violence in the world, evil in the world. The lesser king of spiteful vindictiveness is going to tempt us to way overreach instead of making wrongs right or seeking reconciliation the, the, the lesser king of vindictiveness is going to make us overreach to reach for the necks of our enemies and around and around and around the cycle we go hate for hate evil for evil what's going to break that what's going to heal that what's going to bring peace to that only Christ who satisfies both, that true forgiveness, true peace can emanate. And true forgiveness and peace, that doesn't, it doesn't negate justice. It paves the way for reconciliation. That Christ will work to make all wrongs right. Yet when we reach, instead of for vindictiveness, we reach for Christ. Do you see what happens? All the justice is satisfied in him. All the mercy is extended through him. That in Christ we have all the resources to have peace and therefore in turn to make peace with others. Why turn to any other king? My friends, the king that has come is the king that you need. Receive him. Receive him. And his peace, not his tears, will be yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have come in power and meekness, in glory and humility. Father, will you help us to turn to you? Will you help us to respond rightly to you? And as we do that, Lord, and even, even now in this next song, Lord, a, a way, one small way among many of responding to you in worship, may our voices join all of creation in declaring and praising your goodness and grace. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.